Welcome to another episode of the uh, Molecular Medicine and Nuclear Medicine podcast. Um, for the uh, and we're doing this again virtually for the Society of Nuclear Medicine uh, 2020. And instead of doing it from uh, New Orleans, we're doing it from uh, Poland and from Australia. Um, and uh, and we're even more uh, international this time because um, I'm going to pronounce your name wrong. So. I'll let you pronounce your name. Uh, uh, if you, um, our, our, our researcher here has involved both Edinburgh and uh, in Scotland and 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 Cedar Sinai in in the United States, and um, um, so a very international uh, influence. And it just goes to show how how uh, how things always get better when people across the world talk to each other and do research. So uh, take it away. Tell us a little. Firstly. I pronounce your name correctly. So Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My name is Jacek Kwieciński. Uh, I was born and raised in Poland, and then I was fortunate to travel over to Edinburgh for a, what was meant to be a one-year scholarship, but soon got converted into a full-time PhD with Professor David Newby and Dr. Mark Dweck at the University of Edinburgh, where I've uh, at first worked with... Uh, actually cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging, but then soon shifted towards positron emission tomography, and in particular, F18 sodium fluoride cardiovascular imaging. And working on this topic after my PhD, I traveled overseas to Los Angeles to join Cedar sinai Medical Center, and under the supervision of Dr. Daniel Berman and Piotr Slomka, I was fortunate to work on data which was collected both in Edinburgh and in LA to provide some insights into the prognostic utility of this imaging modality. Right. So tell us a bit, a bit about, uh, about this imaging modality and how you used it. Yeah. yeah so F18 sodium fluoride is on the market for decades now. Uh, and it was successfully employed for imaging malignancies and activity of calcification processes. So in particular, it was useful for imaging the bony skeleton. But we are now well aware that aside from uh, hydroxyapatite being the bone mineral, it is also present within the vascular bed as it is uh, a common pathway uh, and, uh, for the end stage of atherosclerosis. So while this process of atherosclerosis and plaque formation has plenty to do with inflammation, at the very end of it, what we observe are vascular calcifications. And we're pretty good at quantifying these, and we know that the extent of these calcifications has prognostic utility. And therefore, in clinical cardiology, we use the Agatson uh, coronary calcium score in order to stratify our patients. But what is special about the tracer is that it doesn't just give you information regarding the extent of established calcified lesions. It provides insights into the activity of the process, the process of, of active calcification. And we know that these Active calcification processes, also termed as microcalcifications, because they are too small to be detected with non-invasive imaging set, such as CT. We know that these uh, 
microcalcifications are associated with adverse outcomes. And we have data supporting this uh, from histological studies. Right. So this so is what it, people call the, the vulnerable plaque, right? Yes. Yes. So precise. Uh, on, on that previously. Um, so so the, the, the vulnerable plaque is the, is the, it's more important to know about that because it's more likely to lead towards a an adverse cardiac event, right? Than the the yes. fully the calcified ones. So, what you're seeing on a CT scan is exactly what you don't want to see. What you're seeing seeing on a on a PET scan with sodium fluoride, which has got to be the cheapest tracer out ever because it's you don't need to label it to anything, is is the important one because it's the one that really determines cardiac death, right? Yes, yes, that, that's, that's very true. And the, the important thing also to realize is that these established lesions, these highly calcified lesions, can represent burned out disease. And actually, we've got data now that shows that although in clinical cardiology, we're somewhat obsessed with looking for significant stenosis, it, we know it now from the ischemia trial even, that it's even that just being driven by stenosis, we don't actually improve outcomes. And we are well aware now that it is the mild stenosis, the stenosis around 40-50% that can lead to myocardial infarction because the, a particular plaque can be, as you said, vulnerable or we use the term unstable and can rupture. Whereas significant stenosis can often cause symptoms but don't necessarily have to translate into an event. So now in the field, we are more aware that we should look at the activity of the disease rather than just looking at the burden of the disease. And the problem with looking into the activity is uh, for decades, we lacked ways to do it really. Because the simplest way to look at disease activity is to perform serial imaging. Because indeed, if I perform CT whether it's contrast or non-contrast, over, let's say, 12 months, and I see that there's plaque progression, I can be pretty convinced that, indeed, a particular patient is a rapid progressor, so the disease is very active and we need better uh, treatment strategies. However, this only works in retrospect because the fact that you've progressed over the past 12 months doesn't mean that you're going to progress from day from today onwards. And the other issue is that Mm, obviously, you have to wait a year to perform serial imaging to say what happened in the past. So this really time, has little clinical utility. Yeah. During that time, someone could have had a cardiac event. So, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so we're about preventing disease uh, yes. it's going to happen, and, and, and this has got the advantage of doing that, right? Yeah. So we, we are well aware that we need a strategy that enables us to really take a snapshot of a patient and in a given point of time say, okay, it looks like uh, the medication that you're taking is already doing a good job and you're not a rapid progressor. So the likelihood of developing events in your particular case is pretty low. So we're happy. Whereas, okay, actually you look as if you're still progressing rapidly and we need a better strategy. And this is what F18 sodium fluoride can provide And we had previously much evidence supporting the fact that this imaging modality can uh, uh, detect plaques which resulted in MI shortly after infarction. And this is something that Nick Joshi showed in his Lancet paper. 
we also know that um, the the so-called vulnerable phenotype of a plaque lesion, the so-called adverse plaque features, those lesions which look ugly, often attract the tracer. And this is both true with invasive uh, imaging, with IVUS or OCT in the cath lab, and with uh, CT angiography. And we had multiple papers supporting this. Uh, the, we, we've showed some data, the group from Edinburgh with Vary Doris as the first author at the ESC 2019, that actually uh, baseline F18 sodium fluoride uptake predicts progression of calcium score over a one-year follow-up. And this data is still yet to be published. So all this is very amazing and impressive. But, but until recently, we really lacked evidence that F18 sodium fluoride predicts future events. And unless you cross this milestone, the clinical utility of your modality, even if the images look great, and I, I believe they do with f sodium fluoride, it's really worthless. So in an attempt to address this gap in our understanding of f sodium fluoride, we pulled together data from CEDAS-Sinai and the University of Edinburgh, which was collected for numerous prospective observational studies. And we ended up with a cohort of nearly 300 people who all had advanced coronary artery disease. So they already have had plenty of calcium score. Most of them had a history of revascularization, uh, either with bypass grafting or uh, stenting. Uh, almost 70% of them had a myocardial infarction back in the past. And we wanted to see whether our tracer, which we love so much, can actually make a difference and can be better than other established methods in predicting future events. So what happened? Yeah, so, so, we, so, so initially we, we just wanted to check how it performs compared to uh, clinical risk scores because we have dedicated risk scores which are supposedly pretty good at uh, distinguishing those at high risk of adverse events, the SMART and REACH risk models. But it turned out that in our cohort, these rich risk scores are not very powerful. The same was true for calcium scoring, which is not a surprise as we've discussed previously. Whereas F18 sodium fluoride turned out to be a pre pretty, uh, pretty strong predictor of events. And actually, uh, patients who had high F18 sodium fluoride uptake had a sevenfold increase in the risk of myocardial infarction. Wow. <laughs> so it turned out that if we were to divide our patients according to to uh, to the F18 sodium fluoride uptake, these uh, this imaging modality would enable us to distinguish patients who have who have a sevenfold increase in future MI, and in our cohort. The, this was true for almost a third of our patients. So in principle, if you have high F18 sodium fluoride activity measured across the entire coronary arteries with the coronary microcalcification activity measurement, which is a new approach because we believe that just looking at the single TBR value is insufficient, then a given patient has a sevenfold increase in future MI. So this is a patient who needs more attention. You might think of new emerging therapies that might slow down the disease. And fortunately, now we have such medication available, whether it's aggressive lipid-lowering drugs 
or a medication that is supposed to halt inflammation. Although these therapies are rather expensive, so it makes sense to use an imaging modality which can tell you who will actually require such um, modified strategies. Then there's the group of patients who have other the risk score or the how many how many fold difference did did uh, did conventional uh, calcium scoring angiography and and uh, risk scores compare. Yes, so so in so uh, calcium scoring was also significant, but there was only a two-fold increase. Right. Whereas the risk scores actually showed no big difference, and this is probably best uh, right. seen on the receiver-operator curve analysis. So essentially, uh, here we look at the area under the curve, and the bigger it gets, the more accurate is our method for detecting. Right. A particular uh, clinical scenario, and in this case, this is just prediction of myocardial infarctions. So we have the uh, F18 sodium fluoride uh, uh, CMA in red, and it has an area under the curve of 0.76. Yep. Whereas all the other measurements, whether it's risk scores or calcium score, are close to 0.5, and this is actually a toss of a coin. Yeah. So yeah. it really provides very little insights. And you can say, okay, so why is it so bad, actually? Why is it so poor? And I think the reason is that we had a very uniform cohort of patients with very pronounced disease. So these are very special patients. This is not the general population of patients over 65. This is a group in which, as I said, most of them already had an infarct. All of them had some kind of revask, whether it was stenting or the cabbage. And among those who had stents, many of them had three or four uh, coronary stents already. So it's a very particular cohort, and it is important to have this in mind. Uh, and as you see on the Forrester plot, uh, when we looked at the, uh, at the other predictors of uh, adverse events, really, while the confidence uh, intervals, the limits of agreement, were pretty wide for F18 sodium fluoride uptake, which is just a result of the fact that our cohort had only 300 patients and 20 events. So it's not enormous, but this is the best we could have. You see that it provides independent prediction as the, the arrow doesn't cross the, um, the, the hazard ratio of one. Yeah, it's a pretty dramatic effect. Yes, pretty dramatic. So people also ask us, so how is this better above, let's say, CT imaging? And we are now looking into this more formally. But this is a good example. A patient with, uh, with pretty much no calcium score, only one coronary stent, and you've got uptake associated with the stent. And the patient comes back in three years with an MI, which is actually in the distal part of the stent. You see it's occluded here. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things that you're not capable of picking up on CT. You can be very good at locating lesions which look ugly, as we said, the so-called high-risk plaque or plaque with adverse plaque features or vulnerable plaque. But what do you do when the patient already has a stent? If, uh, I mean, CT is not very good at looking into stents. Uh, even if it gives you this opportunity, you, all you can see is really new atherosclerosis building up. But in, in this patient, like the, the stent looks pretty patent to me. So there's, there's really nothing you can pick up from um, standard non-invasive imaging. Whereas on PET, you see that it's glowing pretty strikingly. And indeed, this patient ended up having an event. 
So, so this is how this tracer provides different information that can easy, easily complement what we already utilize in everyday clinical practice. That's pretty dramatic and pretty amazing. Um, there, were, there was another aspect to your study as well. You looked at deep learning, didn't you? Yeah, so, so machine learning, so more like old-style stuff. So we didn't actually learn from images, but we've learned from data um, that was already put into a spreadsheet, so to speak. And now I'll be just uh, sharing some of that so that we can both appreciate our findings. So the rationale behind using machine learning in this context was that we we believe that uh, because we get so much information from both the clinical side and then from imaging, and this is both from CT and uh, f sodium fluoride, to put all this data into context, we really need a way to, to combine all this information. And as I shown previously, although F18 sodium fluoride is the single best predictor, it doesn't mean that if you combine all the other predictors, you cannot do equally well. We, we thought that we really formally need to test this. So we used XGBoost, which is a state-of-the-art machine learning approach for integrating the data from multiple variables. And what it does, it, it's a bit like... I mean, now I'm simplifying very much, but I'm a simple physician. You know, I, I trust my uh, IT team and Piotr Slomka in principle, who, who's an expert in this, in doing this. But the way I understand machine learning, uh, it's a bit like another step in statistics, which we, are, which we all use, such as, uh, let's say, linear regression. So you use multiple, uh, multiple variables to, pro to build an optimal model. And then uh, all these weak learners, those weak predictors, can be put together in order to provide more robust prediction of outcome. So uh, what we did here is we, did, we built separate models, firstly for clinical data alone, and this is here in green. So this is the curve in green on the receiver-operator curve graph. So that's then we added... Yeah. Then we added CT data, and as you see, the green curve is actually superior slightly, although this is obviously not statistically uh, significant to the clinical variable curve. And then we thought, okay, so could we do uh, how much does really sodium fluoride push this um, curve even further? And it turned out that there is a difference which is statistically significant after inclusion of F18 sodium fluoride data. So in this analysis, and this is something I've been presenting at the Society of Nuclear Medicine 2020 annual meeting, it turns out that no matter how hard you try and how robust your clinical data can be, because we had almost 100 variables in this model, you cannot uh, get the information that you get from F18 sodium fluoride PET imaging. So this is definitely something different and something that cannot be replaced with what is already available, again, in the cohort of patients with advanced established coronary artery disease. So I'm not talking about the general population, but those patients who are at high risk of events, but we are really not very good at saying who actually is going to end up with an MI.
Right. It's interesting. The CT really didn't add anything. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's the, yeah. So so it didn't add too much. That that's true. Although in this analysis, we didn't use quantitative plaque analysis. So this right. was stenosis. This was calcium scoring. So there, we probably could do even better with CT if we looked into all the adverse plaque features, high-risk plaques, etc. And this is something that we'll be doing just now. Sure. But, I mean, sodium fluoride is easy to do. Um, you yeah. get some CT information from a, a PET CT scan. Um, mm -hmm. um, so why don't go with the PET CT? And, and yeah. it's, it's also cheap, right? I mean, did you yeah. have, what about gating and though, technical issues? Did you have any technical issues with that? For the car so, moving, you've got a moving so car. So that's, absolutely. So that's, we could have another presentation regarding just the technical refinements that we put together over a pretty long time, actually, because this is something that uh, Piotr Slomka had on his desk for, uh, for pretty much uh, six years now. So he started on working on correcting for the uh, heart contractions. So the motion that is simply associated with the fact that your heart is contracting. And he developed a tool which enables you to, um, to, 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 rather than just looking into gated images, uh, which are required during end diastole, to actually include all your data in one image, uh, which is motion free. Right, and so, so, like so data, uh, data driven motion correction, if you like, uh, or data driven motion. Uh, uh, yeah, so, so that, that's one of the options. Although, uh, if we're talking specifically about hard uh, uh, contractions, uh, this is pretty well done because uh, the uh, because hard uh, contractions uh, follow the same path from cycle to cycle. So this doesn't even have to be actually data-driven. But then again, there are different motion issues with F18 sudden fluoride imaging because there, there's some breathing going on. Yes. And there's also the risk of the patient repositioning. And this is something that Dr. Lassen, who was also working at Cedar sinai with Piotr Slomka, worked and he corrected for uh, gross patient motion, meaning repositioning of the patient wow. during imaging. And this was uh, data-driven, yes. Uh, and here just to show uh, how motion correction works, this is probably an image that is targeted at cardiologists. Uh, as we're looking at the right coronary artery, which yep. is now showing some clear uptake here in its mid-segment. Yep. And we do know that when the heart contracts, the tricuspid annulus of the tricuspid valve moves towards the apex, just like my arrow is now working. So if you look at these uh, images on the right-hand side, yep. you can see that what happens during your PET acquisition, because your PET is acquired continuously over half an hour, is that during every heart cycle, uh, your, your uptake shifts on top of your CT, because your CT is acquired in end diastole. You don't acquire your CT continuously because you would probably kill the patient with radiation. That's one reason. And the other reason is that the quality of your images would be very poor because while the heart is moving, CT is not that efficient in uh, providing a motion-free image. And that is why we acquire images either in end systole or end diastole, preferably. So here you see that actually in this particular patient, 
just the movement of the mid-segment of the right coronary artery is up to 14 millimeters. And this is one of the issues that Piotrzomka and his lab dealt with over the past years. The other problem that uh, people face with F18 sodium fluoride is that people who perform PET imaging are not necessarily experts in um, acquiring um, coronary CT and geography because it's pretty different. I mean, it's not difficult, but, you know, we're good at what we do a lot. You're not good at something you do every three months or so. So we developed a way where you can use the CT, which was acquired on a separate machine, which was acquired before your PET study. And this is particularly useful because often patients will undergo coronary CT angiography. Someone will see that there's plenty of disease and maybe they would like to see whether this disease is active. And they then they can do a PET alone without CT angiography. No need for contrast, no need for superb expertise in conducting coronary CT angiography. And also importantly, typically standalone CT machines are better in terms of their technical capabilities than hybrid PET-CT machines. So if your patient already had a state-of-the-art coronary CT, you can just do a PET-alone examination, and it's possible actually to co-register the the PET signal to a CT that was acquired before the PET. The other issue with this tracer, which is very interesting, is the optimal time for imaging. Because while obviously at conferences we show the best pictures, because we all do that, and it's reasonable, in reality what happens is that because we're trying to find a needle in a haystack, I'm looking for microcalcifications, tiny areas where there are active calcification processes. It is not uh, very often that we see very, very, very high signal. And there can be signal from the great vessels, from the valves, So often the lesions that you're looking for have a signal that is equal uh, uh, to, let's say, uh, the aortic uptake. And sometimes it is even close to actually the background activity because there's still um, some tracer uh, in the blood pool. And this happens when you're imaging one hour after injection of the tracer. But if you wait longer, Uh, it turns out that somehow your images seem very simple to analyze. So here we had uptake in the aortic wall and some background activity. And here it's only the coronary plaque that stands out. And this is just because we were waiting for three hours after injection. So this is an analysis that we showed at ASNIC and then published in JNM. Uh, Data collected at uh, Severance Hospital, Seoul, South Korea, by Dr. Mijin Yoon. Uh, because you always had this idea in mind that because we're looking for small targets, probably the longer we wait, the better our signal becomes. It's How, better. Yes, it's dramatic. And why is this all possible? And why am I, I am not just fooling you? It, it's pretty simple. I mean, the signal is in the areas where the tracer really managed to bind to hydroxyapatite. So the bones are also strikingly hot. There's uptake in the descending aorta because there's some atherosclerosis there. It all makes perfect sense. But in the blood pool, there's pretty much nothing happening. And then you go to the second example where the activity in the plaque is pretty much borderline. And many people were arguing, okay, there's nothing there. You're just like, you know, making this up. And then, okay, we wait longer. And again, it's, it's, it becomes pretty obvious. 
And yes, there is uptake in the um, aorta, but there's, that is something we really do see. And the bones are still very prominent. But in the blood pool, in the atrium, just compare this activity here and over here, there's pretty much nothing there. So if you're looking for small targets and you know that you need the highest uh, signal to noise and signal to background uh, the difference, then waiting longer will really help. And this is also true for the final example. Yeah, well, that, that makes perfect sense. I, I guess the other thing is, is, that, is that we're getting better quality PET scanners these days can, that can deal with, with very low-level activity. So waiting longer uh, and allowing the trace to decay is not really a problem because you still have plenty of activity left in order to pick it up, right? Absolutely. That's, that's very much true. So I, I, I said a bit about the nature of atherosclerosis, that it is a disease that has to do with inflammation in the early stages. So now there's a new tool actually to look into the uh, inflammation of the plaque uh, based on CT angiography imaging. And this data was first uh, published by the Oxford group and then Damini Day from Cedars-Sinai building a special tool into her quantitative plaque analysis software Autoplaque, which also enables us to assess the attenuation of the pericoronary adipose tissue. And it turns out that this uh, attenuation is also a marker of um, atherosclerosis in, uh, activity and uh, has uh, prognostic implications. So we looked at the associations between F18 sodium fluoride uptake and this peri pericoronary adipose tissue density. And it turned out that these two imaging modalities seem to provide similar information so that many plaques that had evidence of uptake, so there were micro calcifications there, although we didn't see any obvious calcium, also had uh, altered uh, adipose tissue density, suggesting that an inflamed plaque has plenty of micro calcifications, which we know is true from um, work carried out in histological samples. And then we also investigated how F18 sodium fluoride is associated with uh, these high-risk plaques or adverse plaque features. So when there's a plaque full of lipid with a big necrotic core, there's going to be F18 sodium fluoride uptake, and this is something we discussed. And then finally, something I think that is pretty important, and we already talked about it briefly. For a couple of years, we've been reporting maximum TBR values. So what we did is we looked at a coronary artery of a given patient. Here we are looking at the right coronary artery. And we would search for the hottest spot and simply store the SUV max value divided by the SUV mean from the background. And that would give, give us a TBR value, which would be our output. But while this works in most cases, uh, within our cohort, the one that we were discussing, 60% of patients had more than one lesion which showed uptake. So just like in this particular patient. So if I just report a TBR value from this plaque, will it actually convey the information that this patient had uptake also in the mids and distal segments of the artery? We believe that that's not informative enough, that we need a tool that would enable us to characterize the uptake along the entire vessel rather than just focusing on one single pixel. And this is an approach that was successfully implemented into oncology. 
uh, when uh, there's burden, a tumor burden measurement. So absolutely, tumor burden, yeah, active tumor volume, etc. Where you look at the the uptake within a tumor, which exceeds a particular cutoff, and it gives you an information about how much tracer is actually going there, rather than just a peak SUV or peak TBR or etc. So we use that approach, which was successfully implemented in oncology for our coronary purposes. And we build volumes of interest along the coronary arteries. And this is a bit tricky, but this can be achieved uh, thanks to quantitative plaque analysis software, such as Autoplaque, where you have center lines for the coronary arteries. So then when you co-register your data, you can build these 3D torches tubes, which encompass the artery and its immediate surroundings. And rather than reporting free TBR values per vessel, you have just one um, coronary microcalcification activity output, which is the amount of the tracer that's sitting in there. And we simply quantify only pixels which are uh, uh, above the background signal plus, plus two standard deviations of the background. So essentially to get rid of noise and accidental findings. And it turned out in our uh, study that we're discussing that uh, while this was not statistically significant, numerically, the area under the curve for the TBR measurement compared to the CMA measurement was inferior. So it turns out that quantifying along the entire vessel adds in prediction of adverse events, which all makes sense. So these are some of the, the contributions to the field coming out of the uh, Slomka lab from CDS Sinai Medical Center in a snapshot. Wow, that's an enormous amount of uh, information and a really, uh, I almost say a revolutionary in, 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 uh, in a new modality in many ways. I mean, it's, um, I'm just, given that it's so simple in, in terms mm -hmm. of tracer availability, so I've, there's PET scanners everywhere. There's F18, not even FDG, mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. Um, really what's missing is uh, is the, the teaching people how to do this right because obviously there's a lot of technique that goes in there and there's a lot of stuff. Sure. But that's probably all we need and we can make a big difference to cardiac disease. Would you agree? I mean, obviously, I mean, I would be stupid not to agree with you. <laughs> but, that, but to be a bit critical, not very, very critical, but a bit. Uh, although there are groups globally doing this, and there's a great group in Japan led by Dr. Kitagawa, who's, who, who's contributed a lot to the field. I know that the guys in Perth in Australia are also doing great, uh, and I was fortunate to meet some of them. Uh, I think that still more people need to start doing this, and the group in Seoul, obviously, that we collaborated on the delayed imaging aspect. Uh, People need to learn how to do it, that's true. And one of the missing links was really software because we used to do it in some open, so, uh, open source softwares, but they were not dedicated for this. Uh, but fortunately now, thanks to the efforts of uh, Piotr Slomka, there is FusionQuant, which is actually tailored in order to provide um, simple and simple interface and a very user-friendly interface for quantifying updates. And it has built-in capabilities for correcting for motion. So it's all pretty much available. So now we just need more people to be using this. And I know that there's a group in Mexico which just started. And also in the UK, there's still the ongoing prefer 
study, which is an observational study, which recruited 700 people shortly after myocardial infarction to assess whether in a prospective observational manner, patients who have increased activity outside of their carpet vessel will end up having events during follow-up. So this study will again provide more insights because you can argue, and it's a fair critique, that the data that I've been presenting today that we're discussing is a post hoc analysis of data collected for other observational studies. So it's somehow biased and it's just 300 people and only 20 events. Actually, today is 22, but still not that many. But luckily, that bigger study prefer where will be very informative. And yes, hopefully, uh, at some point, F18 sodium fluoride can be used clinically to really help us uh, distinguish those patients who are at highest risk of adverse events so that we can target medication in a clever way. And there are at least two studies which are looking into uh, utilizing this imaging modality uh, for guiding clinical decision-making. One of them was randomizing patients to ticagrelor versus placebo, placebo. So we had patients with advanced disease and they received a very strong antiplatelet drug to see whether we can prevent events or actually small myocardial injury which was measured with high-sensitive troponin. And there's another study just now ongoing at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center where a very potent lipid-lowering drug, the PCSK9 inhibitor, is being tested to see whether patients with active disease, high uptake, benefit in terms of the PRAC progression after the uh, introduction of this potent drug uh, so, so, so there's still things we need to learn, but it's really promising. Yeah, I think we need to get more people involved in bigger multinational studies, big, bigger papers, better cooperation, in the same way that the oncology people have got together with, with prostate therapy. I think, I think maybe we need to get the cardiologists and the nuclear cardiologists together to do similar plans along those lines to, to make right. it universally available and universally clinically used. Would you? Yep, yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. well, let's get it done. Uh, who are the people from Perth, by the way? Uh, so uh, shame on me, but now from my head, I cannot remember okay. the That's PI, right. but I know the PhD student, Jamie Bellinger, something like oh, yeah, that. Yeah, I know him. Yes, I know him. Yes, um, uh, I know him. All right. And, and we actually met briefly, so I'm, I'm kind of fortunate that we even know each other, so. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I've met him, and uh, and uh, I've uh, I've spoken. So, yeah, okay, well, that's great. Um, uh, well, we'll get we'll get that going, I think, and uh, let's get it going uh, uh, in more cities and more places, and uh, and I'm sure in not very much longer you're going to be a leader in this field too. I think uh, it's pretty obvious. Having you just you know um, a young investor, young investigator award for the side of nuclear medicine, great training. Great enthusiasm and great interest and really good depth of knowledge. Um, fantastic Thanks. talking to you. One of the best podcasts we've done, I think. And uh, and I think uh, we'll have to – we'll, uh, I really appreciate you taking part in this and, and uh, taking awesome. part in the podcast. Thank you. Always a pleasure and thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah.